Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Occasionally, there'd be a few hunters that would show up to my to a book talk, and there'd be a bunch of people who are interested, who are vegetarian or, or had real concerns about animal welfare, and some amazing, respectful, and occasionally moving conversations. So to hear a hunter speak in a in a form like that about the emotion that has come with the experience of hunting and the feelings that he or she feels about taking the life of an animal. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws of American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is Aaron Kindle. Today I have a great guest as usual, but I'm really excited about this conversation because it spans so many different ways of thinking about the outdoors and is just a good intellectual, you know, digging down on some subjects that I think are really important and that people should be thinking about. So today my guest is Tovar Saruli. How you doing today, Tovar? I'm well. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming. Tovar's a really interesting guy. I'm going to give you a little bio and then we'll jump into a little bit more of the substance. But uh, he's a lifelong outdoorsman. He's been everything from a carpenter to a forester and a logger and a vegetarian that became a hunter. Something clicked and he became a hunter. So... Uh, anyway, he's a writer, he's a speaker, a consultant, and he's published a book called The Mindful Carnivore, A Vegetarian's Hunt for Substance. And this is a lot of what we're going to talk about today. It's a very interesting book. I read it a handful of years back, and he's reread it again. And I'm just happy to have you today. And Tovar, we always start out with what we've been doing outside lately. And so you'll have to share with us a little bit about what you've been up to, and then we'll get into questions. Go ahead. So what am I doing outside? Um, So yesterday, my wife, Catherine, and I got out uh, kayaking for the first time this season. Last year, we thought end of April was pretty good. It's been really warm here this spring. It's a crazy early spring. So here we are. It was uh, the 11th of April, and we were out on the out on the water paddling around. It was a tiny bit of ice around the edges of this pond. We were paddling on just a little slushy ice left, um, but that was that was fantastic to, to get out that early. Um, and I've been scouting for turkey hunting. I've I've never really done turkey hunting; just sort of dabbled it in a tiny bit, and gonna gonna give it a little more of a whirl when our our season opens up here in May. So I've been scouting around and finding some spots where turkeys hang out and see if I can uh, <clears throat> make something happen. Nice. To me, uh, any day outside is a good day, I say. So uh, I've actually, uh, it started to be spring here as well. I've been out on the water float fishing once last week, which is great. It was the first time all season. And then I got my son out fishing another day, which was awesome. And then yesterday, our our little ski hill closed. It was the last day of the season. So we went up, uh, you know, for that with costumes and music and fun and end of the season shenanigans. So that's just the quick, you know, version of what I've been doing outside the last week or so. Uh, but let's jump in to your story. I think it's a really amazing story. Uh, I think a lot of people are going to enjoy hearing about it. 
you know, in your journey. And one of the people things have heard me say is that I often like talking to and have our conversations with with vegans and vegetarians and other people who care, basically. You know, someone who's, who's made those choices and who cares enough to make those choices. And they're trying to do the right thing. You know, so to me, that's always what makes people interesting and it makes them compassionate people uh, that are fun to talk to. Um, so really, you know, you're a conscientious hunter and I think one of the most fascinating things we can explore is how you got there. And so I'm glad we have you here. So let's just talk about, you know, your, your upbringing and your connection to the outdoors when you were young. You know, you grew up in the outdoors and did a lot of outdoor stuff. What did that look like for you? Yeah, I, I spent a ton of time outdoors, you know, especially in the summers. Uh, <clears throat> I grew up fishing, catching bullfrogs, sort of, I guess, my sort of first, first quote, quote unquote, hunting experience, you know, catching, <clears throat> catching bullfrogs. Um, exploring the woods. I enjoyed, um, even archery and had a little bit of experience with, with firearms. You know, I just, I just loved being outdoors and, and seeing, seeing wild things and, and, and love fishing. Um, I was kind of curious about, about hunting, but never knew anyone that I saw regularly. I mean, I had an uncle who was a hunter who many years later would become my mentor as I got into hunting, but I didn't have any any regular exposure to to hunting, and uh, just this was in <clears throat> basically in in New Hampshire and Vermont. Uh, spent tons of my time outdoors. Whenever I wasn't buried in a book, you know, <laughs> I was outdoors pretty much. Yeah, so it, it's more of a lack expo a lack of exposure than it really was. You know, you weren't against hunting. You weren't shown that it was bad or anything. You just never really had the chance to do it. Yeah. As a kid, I mean, I imagine that if I had, um, had someone who had expressed an interest in, in mentoring me in hunting or had shown me a bit about it, I probably would have, I probably would have gotten involved fairly young. Um, but just never, never had that, uh, that exposure. And then, so you grow up, you do some college and, you know, some running around and doing the, some of the jobs we've talked about. And then you hit this period when you're 20 years old and you say, I'm going to be a vegetarian. So what spurred that after, you know, your, your outdoors life and fishing and catching frogs and all these things, you know, what was it that said today, I'm going to be a vegetarian? Yeah. I mean, I, I started to, I knew, I knew vegetarians even growing up, you know, friends of my <clears throat> folks, we were, my family was never vegetarian, but knew folks who were and in high school, um, uh, my girlfriend and her family were vegetarian. I'm just sort of, you know, exposed to it as a, as a possibility that I hadn't really thought about when I was a kid. Um, I just sort of ate whatever was, whatever was on my plate and I didn't, I wasn't terribly picky about what, what I ate. Uh, but I had this general exposure to it. And then at, you know, like many of us, you know, at, 20 ish we're we're thinking about who are we you know who are we in relation to who our parents were what are we doing in the world what's our maybe we're feeling like we want to push back against whatever we sort of inherited from our parents in some way um just exploring who we are and i was thinking a lot about about those kinds of things and i didn't have a religious upbringing uh at all and i got curious about different religions and i you know started to you know study buddhism a little bit and and uh just think about you know compassion sort of as a guiding as a guiding value um or or one of several guiding values and i just remember <clears throat> going i went fishing i was 20 years old that summer and hadn't fished in a while i'd been you know off to college and whatnot and and cast a line in and you know reeled in this really gorgeous brook trout and, you know, had it on the cutting board and put my, put my knife down through its spine, you know, right behind the head. And I was like, you know, I didn't have to do that. And, and I actually opened my book with that scene, you know, because that, that was that moment sort of, a, of epiphany for me of, I didn't have to kill that fish. And that just, you know, that was sort of the, the, the start of it. And then I started thinking more about it and what I was eating. And, and, uh, that was animal welfare and compassion for other creatures, for other living beings. That was really the, 
the the motivating force to start it. And then I started to learn much more about vegetarianism and all the other arguments people make for it, you know, in terms of health, in terms of environment, and all sorts of other other arguments that uh, pretty soon I was not only vegetarian, but vegan. So I wasn't even eating, you know, eggs or dairy products. And I was, <clears throat> I was pretty committed at that point. And, and, you know, obviously something switched, I mean, in a pretty profound way too. I mean, you don't just, you don't just jump over and write a book and do all the things you've done since then without something, you know, pretty profoundly switching. And let's just unpack that a little. It was about a decade that I was pretty strict vegetarian, mostly vegan for, you know, 90% of that time. Um, and it wasn't, it was in my, so that I, I stopped being vegetarian basically early thirties, you know, when I was 30, 31, 32 and, uh, went to, went to grad school, um, probably, I guess about maybe eight years later after I was pretty far, far down the hunting road, um, and really want to explore it. But the shift into, into hunting, um, you know, the first, I guess the first thing was I started to realize that there was not in fact this black and white world that I'd imagined in in terms of good and bad, (laughs) um, around diet. I started to realize that, um, environmental impact, the ethics, um, were a lot grayer. There was a lot, a lot of gray zones, a lot of fuzz in, in those, in those areas. Uh, I remember particularly reading this fantastic book by, uh, Richard Nelson, who actually just passed away, uh, in the past year or two, who was, uh, anthropologist who spent a lot of his life up in Alaska and he grew up non-hunting, um, and ended up doing a lot of research up in Alaska. And he wrote this book, Heart and Blood, about, called Heart and Blood, Living with Deer in America, which is remains my favorite book on, on deer. And he talks about the impacts of agriculture, not only on habitat, but just the number of deer that are killed every year to protect agricultural crops. And that was one of those moments, again, sort of an epiphany of, oh, so the fact that I'm eating, you know, tofu or veggies or fruit um, doesn't mean that animals are not getting harmed or that habitat is not getting impacted. Um, And I still managed to keep that sort of at a distance in my mind, like that's somewhere else. Uh, When I realized that three miles down the road, the little organic farm where, you know, we might get get some salad greens that we weren't anything that wasn't going in our own garden um, or would pick strawberries, you know, that that little organic farm was smoke bombing woodchucks and occasionally shooting deer. And it, it just complicated this vision I had of sort of moral purity uh, from, from my diet. You know, um, I was still vegetarian at that point, but things started to get a little more complex and, and then the second phase of it was nutritionally. Um, my <clears throat> my doctor, who was a a, a Buddhist naturopath, uh, looked at my blood work and some of the symptoms that I had, which was nothing severe, but you know, basically my, my immune system was was not doing fantastically, and then my allergies were acting up and stuff like that. And she said, you know, you might want to think about doing something a little different in your diet. You might want to think about starting to add some some animal uh, products of some kind. Um, and so took the, took the radical step of eating a bowl of yogurt <laughs> at some point in there. Um, if you've been a vegan for a long time, eating any, any uh, animal product starts to feel pretty, pretty weird. Uh, then introduced some, you know, some, some wild fish, some local chicken to start to ease. And my body responded really well. I mean, nutritionally, my, my body was very happy to have some of that back in my diet. Uh, and then the question started to arise. Okay, so now you're not only accepting these ethical gray zones that exist out there because of agricultural systems and whatnot, you're eating individual creatures. So why not start to take responsibility for that and re, you know, in, engage with that? So I took up fishing 
again, went, went back to fishing, which felt very weird, but, but I went back to fishing and I started to get curious in the back of my mind about hunting. And for, for a number of reasons, it was, a, it took me a while to get there to actually hunting. Uh, but I started to get curious about that as a, as a possible path. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. It, it reminded me in graduate school myself, <laughs> I took an animal ethics course. And as a hunter, you know, I was in there. I may have told this story on the podcast before, but I don't think so. But there were six students, uh, six in the class, and five were vegetarian or vegan, and I was the one hunter. And the teacher was a very strict vegan. And long story short, uh, my final paper was on how an ethical, localized hunter is actually less cruel to animals than a standard American vegetarian. Uh, Needless to say, it was the only B I got in graduate school. Uh, My professor did not buy it. Uh, I'll say it's an A, but uh, it was an A. But anyway, it was a fascinating class, and I had really interesting discussions about, you know, where my ethic comes from and why, and, and why I'd chosen that path. And it taught me a lot about, you know, why those folks did what they did and had some people come up to me afterwards and said, you know, it was great. It would have been a lot different class if we didn't have somebody with a different point of view in here. So there was some great discussions. So anyway, you know, that's, that's kind of, you're, you're one of those, you know, firebrands right there in the center of those kinds of conversations. So let's talk about that. I mean, you decided to, to get into fishing and then you're teetering on the edge of hunting. And then what happened you know, after that. Yeah. You know, and I want to circle back to, to the, something you suggested at the beginning and then sort of touched on again, is that there's actually, there's overlapping values, right. And, and between a lot of hunters, at least those who are, you know, who actually really care about animals in a serious way. And, uh, and a lot of vegetarians that um, they, you know, both care right? And both think about where their food comes from and both think about what it means for animals. They might, they choose a different diet, but they're actually motivated sometimes by some of the same questions and values. Um, and, I, and for me, I don't think my values changed significantly. You know, my actual values were still <clears throat> very, very similar, uh, but I chose a different, um, a different path in terms of how to, how to embody those and how to, how to live with those values. Um, yeah, I, so I, I started thinking about hunting a little bit. Um, part of the hesitation I would say is that hunting for a number of reasons feels different than fishing, you know, partly it's, warm-blooded versus cold-blooded in terms of the prey partly it's um the you can you can catch and release with fish whether you should or not is a different <laughs> sort of ethical argument but you can catch and release fish you know when you when you shoot something it's pretty final you know there's a, there's a sort of immediate violence to that moment of of taking that life um I was a little hesitant about that. I hadn't had, I hadn't owned firearms in years. I wasn't so sure I wanted to have firearms again. And I think as powerful is just the, the symbolism of hunting in mainstream American culture is kind of ambiguous. You know, there's, there's moral questions and issues around hunters and hunting. And in some ways there has been, you know, you look back at the history, cultural history of hunting in, in this country, it's pretty fascinating. You know, <clears throat> since, since colonial times, there's been this very bizarre sort of set of identity issues around hunting and who hunters are in relation to society. But, you know, we have stereotypes about hunters and I wasn't sure I wanted to become a hunter. You know, it felt weird to, to the idea of taking that mantle on. But I started emailing my uncle, the one who, uh, you know, <clears throat> I'd known as a kid and, and very much liked and respected, um, even though I knew he was a hunter. You know, we didn't really talk about those issues when I was a strict vegetarian, <laughs> um, <clears throat> if we saw each other. But uh, I started asking him questions and thinking about it. And I knew some hunters around here who I 
didn't know many, but I knew a couple who I really respected um, as, you know, as conservationists and, and otherwise. Um, and just sort of started edging into that territory and uh, then eventually said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a whirl. I'm not committing. I don't know if I'm going to go all, all the way through with this, but <clears throat> I'm going to try it. So, you know, took on a red and got myself a 22, hadn't had a firearm in a long time and, and started talking with my uncle about, so if I, so if I were to take up deer hunting, what would that look like? And, and, you know, one thing led to another. And, you know, within a, within a couple of years, I was out there trying to, trying to, first I did some small game hunting and then trying to get my first deer, which, which took me a while. <laughs> it took me a few years to actually make that happen, but it was every step of the way. It was fascinating. Uh, my own thought process and the questions that came up, but also in relation to other folks, you know, and how am I going to be perceived now, like by, by friends or, um, you know, folks who know me as, as a vegetarian, for example, it, it was quite odd for a while making that transition. Yeah. I'd be interested to hear you talk about that. What was that like? I mean, you know, the first time you had to say to somebody that, you know, you used to be a vegetarian, but now you're a hunter. You know, sometimes being a vegetarian is a big part of people's identity. And so I think those conversations that do come up and can sometimes, you know, that come up are very interesting. Talk about that moment for you. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I got, the big picture is I got considerably less um, backlash or discomfort, you know, a lot fewer uncomfortable conversations than I anticipated. I actually thought there was going to be more, more there. Um, but I remember one time being out in the woods or on a trail headed back home after, after hunting for a bit and a neighbor saw me out and had no idea that I was a hunter. Um, and, and made some comment about, Oh, I thought it was some redneck out there hunting, but it's, but it's you out here hunting. And, he was clearly a little concerned about himself and his dog, even though I was bow hunting and there was like, you know, zero, <clears throat> zero danger to anybody around me. Um, but it, I hadn't like announced it you know, <laughs> to everybody. I'd say one of the most uncomfortable moments for me was not so much an interaction with, with someone, but um, when I wrote my first essay for, for publication, uh, probably actually the first thing I wrote for publication at all. I don't think I ever felt like I had much to say that, you know, here I was, you know, in my early thirties, maybe mid thirties at that point. Um, you know, what, do, what do I know about the world? <laughs> what do I have to say? Uh, but I felt like I finally had something worth talking about having made this transition to, to hunting coming out of being a vegetarian. And when that came out in, uh, Northern Woodlands, which is a, a regional magazine, up here in the Northeast, um, the idea of this article coming out with my name on it, which it felt, and I've, I've joked about this with some people, you know, it felt, so I, I was coming out of the closet as a hunter, you know, I was, I was like <clears throat> publicly announcing I'm a hunter by, by publishing this uh, piece with my, with my name on it. And I was uneasy. I was like, oh, what's the blowback going to be, you know, and there was nothing. Like there was no blowback. There was like people read it and like, oh, you hunt. And wow, it's really interesting to hear your perspective on it. And I, I, there was like no discomfort actually. But I wondered, you know, sort of in the back of my mind if there was going to be some kind of, you know, issue because now now I've uh, come out as a hunter. Um, so it was a, a more, probably more my own, my own discomfort actually and, and wondering what would happen uh, than anything else. And it's regional, right? I mean, here... In Vermont, there's traditional Vermont farming, hunting culture, and there's a lot of folks who came here in the 60s and 70s, you know, the back to the land movement, a lot of hippies, and, you know, there's quite a mix uh, here. In a different part of the country, it probably would have been very different, you know, <clears throat> at one extreme, you know, very hunting-centric cultures, I would have been much more accepted by making that move. And in other places, just the opposite. Uh, but but here it was sort of, eh, <laughs> either way is okay. <laughs> it 
which made it easier. Having that, culture, that cultural context made it easier, you know, just being in, that, in this culture made it easier for me to make that shift. Yeah, so what was that like? You're saying, so when you decided to hunt, it wasn't, it wasn't I mean, it was an epiphany. It was an epiphany mm-hmm. over time, though. It wasn't coming up like one day you woke up and said, you know, all these things have been happening, and I just think I need to hunt now. Do you remember the kind of moment that you said, okay, I think I'm going to hunt? Was there a moment that you can recall? You know, I, I don't really specifically. Um, there were all these stages, all these steps. I, mean, I remember one spring there was this, um, I found this truck parked at the end of our driveway and didn't know who it was. We live, you know, pretty, pretty rural, long driveway. And, and he had driven partway down and parked and I left a note and ended up talking to him. And he was this older, um, turkey hunter. I think he was hunting with a, maybe a muzzleloading shotgun or something. I mean, he was very much a sort of traditionalist, um, super knowledgeable guy, really interesting. Um, love talking to him about nature when we, when we met and, and chatted after he came back from his morning hunt. Um, woman named Sue Morse, who's a well-known tracker and conservationist here in Vermont, who I learned quite a bit about, about tracking and, and habitat conservation from, and she's a hunter and, you know, just various examples of people that helped me sort of move my thinking along toward a kind of hunter identity that I could take on and, and, and really feel comfortable with, um, a, a local hunter, I know, giving me some some uh some venison both both deer and some some moose steak you know from a hunt that he and his brother had been on and just trying that like trying red meat again which i had not eaten in in many years and so there are all these little stages of exploring the territory and seeing how it felt yeah so that's kind of interesting i'm going to stay on that point for a second because one of the most interesting things that people who you know don't hunt they just they don't see it the same way and they kind of can't then see that right you know and the people that do hunt they kind of can't be seen they don't understand the vegetarian thing it's weird almost like an invisible piece of glass in between the two things but there's really some things that you just never know until you're one or the other and i think that's what's interesting too about you know a lot of the way that there's two parts that are kind of concentric circles (laughs) in this one hunting and this one has a broader definition than I think it deserves because we put a lot of things as hunting that are not hunting in my opinion, right? Hunting to me is an ethical chase for food. You know, you're doing it for that reason. That's hunting. You know, all the things that that sport killing and all these other things that have kind of been thrown at the hunters, you know, I wish we could figure out some sort of way to call hunting what it is and call the other stuff something else. Because, you know, when you talk, to somebody who's never been around hunting, they think that's hunting too. And to me, that's that's the gray area. And that's something that I think is hard for people to get past because they think if you're a hunter, then you're all those other things. And I think you would especially understand this if you don't want to be called half of that. You know, I don't want to be thought of as half of those things, you know, because they're not becoming in the way I think about it. And, you know, there's a lot of people that think you like killing. When really, I mean, I love hunting. I hate killing. It's always the worst part of it. And, you know, you've probably known people. It's hard to tag out on the first day, right? Because you really want the hunt. I mean, you want the hunt. You want to get to meet. You're so happy, but you're like, man, that means the hunting season's over. I've done that. I passed up things early just because I'd be like, well, I don't want it to be over. And I don't want it to be over because the hunting is so great. And it's just kind of a long-winded way of saying, you know, it's a gray area there in the middle people often assign things from that gray area. And when that happens, I think it leads to ignorance and fear and a lot of weird things that are, you know, misunderstood by both sides. And I think people like you with your book and the the writing that you're doing are trying to get to that and unpack some of that for people. So let's just dip further into where you went because I think I got it wrong in the first place. I realized I confused the two and it was later that you went to graduate school, but you know, you become a, a public-facing ambassador and however you want to call it to where now you're kind of the spokesperson for hunting and you work in this area and you do conservation and 
You know, you, you get to kind of get into how that transformation happened from all these things to when you were younger and getting to hunting now. And now you're a well-known speaker or ambassador. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was strange, not because I, you know, never imagined in, in my wildest dreams <clears throat> when I was like in my 20s that I'd be, you know, A, hunting or B, you know, publicly communicating about hunting. Uh, but also, uh, I am, I never imagined I'd be a public speaker. You know, I <clears throat> am by nature a fairly quiet person, a fairly introverted person. So to be both writing for, for you know, writing an essay or several essays for publication and then getting this crazy idea that I should, that I maybe had a book idea here um, and, and pursuing that and, and making that happen. Um, and then ending up studying things related to hunting, you know, other, other of what I ended up calling adult onset hunters, you know, uh, like myself and what, what are the motivations and values that drive people to become hunters um, as adults if they didn't grow up in that, in that kind of culture. Um, and then coming out of both my, my book and having to do, you know, book talks and, you know, promotional sort of activities for that, but also out of my, uh, my research in, in grad school, uh, doing public events, you know, for nonprofits, for state wildlife agencies, you know, eventually for, you know, a national conference, international conference, uh, mostly focused on this sort of bridge building, um, the sort of split between environmentalists and hunters, even though a lot of hunters consider themselves environmentalists or conservationists at the very least, and there's a lot of overlap, but there's been this political split and there's a lot of tensions uh, around that. Um, and some of it is as simple as um, the, the food, just the food focus, the ethics, as you say, in, you know, animal ethics and bridging that divide between, between hunters and vegetarians and helping them recognize common ground and common values. Uh, <clears throat> it's been a, it's been a wild sort of, sort of ride to, to make that, that transition. Um, and some amazing experiences, you know, even when I first started out in, in, uh, doing book talks at, you know, bookstores and libraries, you know, back when we used to see other human beings face to face. I don't know if you remember those days, but, <laughs> um, but we uh, had some, had some amazing conversations um, with, you know, occasionally there'd be a few hunters that would show up to my, to a book talk. And there'd be a bunch of people who are interested, who are vegetarian or, or had real concerns about animal welfare and some amazing respectful and occasionally moving conversations so to hear a hunter speak in a, in a form like that about the emotion that has come with the experience of hunting and the feelings that he or she feels about taking the life of an animal and to have people who had a, a stereotype about hunters and how callous and heartless they are um, to hear that. And then just to, to witness that, you need to be able to sort of bring those people together and facilitate that kind of exchange. Um, and then, you know, in some larger sort of settings to have similar sorts of opportunities, but it's been, it's been a gift, you know, to be able to be part of those and, and help some of those conversations happen. Yeah, and so now you work a lot on you know trying to find common ground and getting people together for conservation. Talk about your work and the work you know that you're doing, and what does that look like lately for you? Yeah, um, so the past um, couple of years, um, I've been part of a team at a company called Metropolitan Group, and we do a wide range of of communication and organizational consulting uh, work uh, across environmental and conservation and public health and social justice, a whole, whole range of, of areas. Um, but we're, we're just starting a, a small group of us within the, within the company are, are just starting a project in collaboration with, 
with the Wildlife Management Institute um, and the uh, Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources to help the the agency in in Virginia move the needle on you know what's become known as relevancy you know in the in the agency world help helping them reach beyond their traditional constituents which are you know hunters and anglers largely uh, and really serve the the public trust connect with the the broader public beyond beyond just hunting and angling um, to ensure the future of conservation, really, you know, <clears throat> the keep the agency's work really being supported by by the public socially and politically and fiscally. Um, it, it's there's a, there's a lot of reasons why the future of conservation in this country depends on a much broader demographic of <clears throat> of folks being being engaged and in really positive relationships with, with state and federal, but, but in this case, state, state fish and wildlife agencies. So it's exciting to step into that work. We're just getting that project started. Um, so it remains to be seen where that's, where that's going to go. Um, and it's not necessarily, it's not really focused at all on recruiting hunters. It's not about that, that that's our three, you know, hunter recruitment. That's also an important, uh, piece of work that's going on but ours ours is really sort of outside of that and and bringing new groups of folks into <clears throat> into really positive engaged relationship with with a state a state fish and wildlife agency so i'm <clears throat> excited to to see how that goes yeah and so now you you work on this you know you're trying to find common ground and get people together for conservation talk about that work you're doing lately uh, what does that look like? You know, you're doing some work for WMI and, and just talk about that a little. How's that work taking shape and, and what are you trying to find out exactly? Yeah, well, the, the, a bunch of folks, um, I, I had a, I played a very small role, but, but a bunch of folks from all over the country were involved, particularly um, in, in 2019 in, in putting together what was called the relevancy roadmap, you know, and really looking deeply at <clears throat> the different factors and barriers and opportunities to making state agencies uh, more relevant, getting them more engaged with a broader, uh, <clears throat> broader cross section of of society, and so we're looking both at you know agency culture. What is how is that agency think of itself? Who is part of the agency? What values are represented there? Um, what cross-section of the public is in the agency? And, and how does that uh, relate to engaging with new, you know, with new stakeholders, new constituency groups? Uh, so we're looking internally, right, at the agency culture and, and what the agency currently is and does. And then also we're going to be doing outreach to some of these groups who are under-engaged, if you will, you know, <clears throat> whether that's, you know, could be bird watchers, could be urban youth. It could be any number of different ways we, we, we think about that. And, and that's still all on the table for, for exploration and consideration. Um, so we really want to understand what the agency is now and, and how the agency is is engaging with folks, but also really help the agency get opportunities to learn from these other, you know, these other communities and these other uh, <clears throat> parts of the public. Um, give, really give them a chance to listen, and then then work together to start to put together, you know, like a for, for example, you know, maybe a project that could really speak to and benefit that constituency group, that community, but in a way that also advances the agency's mission and gets them into deep, deeper and, you know, builds trust and gets them into deeper relationship with each other. So it's, uh, the specifics have yet to take shape. You know, it's something that has to happen in conversation with the folks in the, in the agency and in those communities. Um, 
looking forward to <clears throat> to making it happen. Okay, yeah. Do you, do you have a timeline? Are you going to have a product at the end of that, or, or what's that going to look like? What's what's the ultimate goal? Yeah. <clears throat> um. So timeline is it's you know it's about a it's about a year long project so we're we're just getting rolling so probably probably wrap it up early next year um and products will be you know a number of a number of things including some some uh you know of course a final report out of the project but some some strategy documents and ideas some model some sort of project prototypes um and just documenting everything that we everything that we learn, you know, we'll probably have, have some missteps and we'll have some successes and, and documenting all of that and bringing it back to the broader uh, community. I mean, the community of state agencies, that is, you know, we, we want to make this maximally useful to Virginia, but for the, for the wildlife management Institute, WMI, and for us, the, the broader mission is to help, the rest of the states learn and find new, you know, new ways forward. So we'll be, <clears throat> whatever we, whatever comes out of it, I'm sure there'll be, there'll be uh, <clears throat> plenty of uh, further conversations and, and presentations. And we'll be, when we can actually get together with other people again, maybe next year's North American, who knows, we'll, we'll have some, uh, <clears throat> have some opportunity to share that out with folks. Good. Yeah. I mean, I find that one pretty interesting too, because a lot of the state fish and game and, and wildlife agencies are pretty hunter centric, right? I think that's something that in and of itself is, is an issue because much of their revenue and, and, you know, the way they operate is, is hunter centric. And maybe this is a chance where, you know, a lot of folks that listen to this podcast know, but maybe you can talk about it too. Pittman Robertson, Dingle Johnson, you know, they're sometimes getting 75% or so of their revenue from from hunting and fishing. And then it's commensurate to, you know, serving the hunting and fishing population. And that really contributes and motivate agencies to, you know, want to foster and take care of that population. And, and while it's great as hunters, and we have a lot of good things from that, but maybe it's not encompassing enough of, you know, all the fish and wildlife needs. You know, one of the things we work on at, at National Wildlife Federation is the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, you know, and it, it's there's species out there that states have identified through their through their statewide state wildlife action plans that are maybe not threatened or on their endangered species le- list yet, but are in need of some severe help in order not to be an imperiled species or, or put on that list. Um, and this, the act would help them get funding to basically keep from going on the endangered species list, right? It would help them recover and, you know, be in a better place that nobody wants to see these critters be uh, in on the Endangered Species Act because that causes a lot of political strife and all kinds of issues with the agency. So are there other things in your mind along these lines that you see as good ideas for agencies to consider to branch out and start thinking about other ways to serve maybe a larger segment of the public? Yeah, it's interesting that you raise that, and I think it goes back to the origins of that funding stream. You know, the origins of the National Wildlife Federation, for that matter. <clears throat> you know, back to the 1930s and that you know that general era where there was a real recognition for the need for a broad-based coalition. I mean, that's what the National Wildlife Federation essentially started as, and in, in some ways <clears throat> still is, a, a coalition of folks from every, you know, you look at, back at Ding Darling's, you know, cartoons from, <laughs> from that era and, and just trying to pull together people from hunters and anglers to, you know, people who like seeing wildlife in their backyards to, you know, just all sorts of organizations and and groups to come together and speak with one voice in support of of conservation. And before Pittman-Robertson and and certainly before Dingle Johnson, but even before Pittman-Robertson in the late 30s, it was really clear to the same groups of folks who helped found organizations like NWF 
that it was critical that the funding and the design of conservation uh, be unified, right? That it not just be driven by hunters and not just be driven by by non-hunters, that it be this sort of broad-based coalition to design and fund conservation. And just so I think that Recovering America's Wildlife Act, RAWA, is is critical and long overdue to help be part of the mix along with with Pim Robertson and, and Dingle Johnson. Um, I think it's been an unintended consequence maybe of those funding streams, which have done incredibly important and, and good work in the world, that it's become, that state wildlife agencies have become so skewed toward and, and focused so so narrowly on hunting and fishing um, and hunters and anglers. And so I think we have the opportunity with Recovering, Wild, Recovering America's Wildlife Act, with the the kinds of voices like NWF and uh, a lot of the partnerships across, you know, TNC working with, you know, <clears throat> with Ducks Unlimited and all these sorts of uh, longstanding but often overlooked coalitions. I think there's a real opportunity to get, start moving toward the kind of unified conservation model that was originally envisioned, you know, by Leopold and Darling and others <clears throat> um, back in the thirties. And they, they said it very clearly and, you know, history hasn't quite unfolded that way. You know, we've, we've done a lot of good. We've maybe made some missteps. And now I think, you know, most of a century later, we have a real opportunity to start to start to shift that. And it also, I mean, Rawa also critically will, will provide funding to help you know, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, you know, First Nations, you know, uh, tribal nations here in the country too. <clears throat> they haven't had much, you know, funding for their for their work on on wildlife conservation, and and that's a critical piece of the puzzle as well. Yeah, there's some incredible lands the tribes, you know, preside over or you know have jurisdiction over. That are that are their tribal lands. Uh, I'm familiar with the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming, and it's just an amazing wildlife sanctuary, great place. And I mean, it's interesting because you know the funding model so far has really lent itself to the hunter saying we pay, so you know we get a say. And there's been two different kind of outcomes from that. One is that the agencies kind of say, yeah, I think that's pretty true most of the time. And that some of the other groups and users and so on have not had much of a seat at the table. And then there's still a reluctance mm-hmm. to pay for the most part by, by others. And so, you know, c- hunters kind of have to have to hunt. They, they have to have this license. And so they do, and they pay into it. But, you know, mountain bikers, hikers, others. I remember uh, when the Forest Service started testing fees at trailheads, uh, and they do this a little bit in Colorado now, but it was, you know, maybe in the mid-late 90s. And we were kind of protesting against this, basically saying, like, no way you you can tell us that we have to pay a fee to go on public land. Remembering that, and mm-hmm. it was like a $5 fee, nothing even that crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the other outcome has been that there's even some hunters I've heard say, you know, we don't want that other funding because it's just a right. proportion <laughs> uh, that'll take away from our voice. And hunters are, you know, are only about 5% of <laughs> Americans anyway. And so if, if they think it's going to take away from that, that power that they've had, of right. course, some of them are reluctant to do that. So it's an interesting thing to just try to pull apart. And, and hopefully right. I think everybody keeps their eye on the prize, yep. you know, better outcomes for conservation, and, and we can get somewhere. But everybody's got to be willing to give a little bit, give a little something, pay something, do something. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, you know, it's it is a risk, and and people are afraid of you know hunters in particular are afraid of losing some some influence, um, and I totally get that. And it's important that those groups not be you know that <clears throat> hunters more broadly or particular subgroups of hunters not be um, alienated in the process of 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 broadening the the funding base or broadening the the public 
that is served um, by by conservation or listened to in in conservation. Um, and you know the the mention you make of fees and there totally is resistance, uh, whether it's to you know fees to register your kayak or your canoe or to mountain bike on public land or what have you. There definitely has been pushback to that in times, but there's also, you know, whenever, um, hunting and fishing licenses change, you know, if if they go up by a few bucks, you know, there's often a good bit of outcry about that. And I sometimes think that we, as, uh, as hunters and anglers are, just a little bit too self-congratulatory about our sort of heroic stature in the history of conservation. Um, because, you know, when it comes down to individual choices, a lot of people don't want to pay. Like if you had the option to pay that 11% excise tax or not, or the option to buy, you know, that hunting license or not, or pay less for that hunting license, lots and lots and lots of us would (laughs) opt to pay less. Um, but we don't have the option if we're going to be, you know, if we want to buy that gear or if you want to hunt or fish legally, then you gotta pay. And, and so finding ways to, whether it's the sales tax model, like they have in in Missouri and Arkansas, uh, where everyone who buys, who anyone, everyone who buys anything in that state is paying a little bit and it adds up, um, whether it's that model or if it's specific to activities, you know, like mountain biking or paddling, uh, <clears throat> we have to find uh, better models and and do it in a way that that folks don't feel, you know, don't feel too threatened and don't, you know, really start to lose um, access to to hunting and fishing, for example. And that's another interesting point because, I mean, a lot of the way we got to where we are in the hunting world is, you know, the game resources were down to barely nothing. And then we decided, okay, we'll, we'll self-regulate and, you know, have seasons and pay a mm-hmm. little. And so I was trying to think, like, what if there was just five mountain biking trails in Colorado, for instance, and that's all anybody could get to and, and they'd have to pay. I think the reluctance to pay would go away very fast. You know, if, if they could say, well, if we pay, you get the other 5,000 of them, you know, it'd be 50 bucks or whatever. And people would be like, sign me up and they'd be into that. And so often, unfortunately, it's when our back is against the wall or some sparsity that leads to these things, you know, where we end up doing better finally. For sure. I mean, the fear, yeah. I mean, the fear of losing it all, right. I mean, the fear of like whitetails or whatever species or place is just going to be destroyed completely. When you see that, you you face the specter of that possibility, then people get motivated in a hurry to take action, to pay a fee, whatever. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, we're getting close to time, but I want to ask you two other things. Um, and so I want to move us along, even though we could talk about that one for a long time. I wanted to ask you specifically, because there's a a lot of thinking around this, but, you know, just the way hunters talk about hunting and, 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 and the hunting culture and what attracts people, Mm. you know, you can't, you you can talk in a way that's inviting and connecting, or you can talk in an opposite way. uh, But, you know, that's really important to how people come to hunting and accept hunting and, and now, especially with less and less people hunting, it seems there's a big responsibility for hunters. Uh, and so tell a little bit more about that, that kind of way we have to talk. And you, you've been out there talking to everybody from vegetarians and hunters and you know people trying to do conservation and be more relevant in agencies. So I think you're the perfect person to ask, you know, what do you think about that? What have you learned? And you know, how should we be talking to be the most inviting and connecting as hunters? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'll say a few things on that. And, and incidentally, when I was in grad school, you know, what I studied was communication. What I studied was, you know, how, how do we make, how do we understand each other? How do we make meaning of things? You know, how do we communicate 
or not to each other. And so I think a ton about, about language and about communication uh, in general. And I would say, first of all, that when a non-hunter who doesn't have much exposure to hunting, but isn't, maybe has some doubts or questions, but is not completely committed to being opposed either. You know, there's sort of somewhere in that, <clears throat> that mainstream of, of non-hunting America. Um, when they find, when they meet someone who's a hunter and they want to know something about it, my experience is that whether they ask it directly or not, the first thing they really want to know is they want to know something about your values. You know, they want to understand, like, do you kill, do you eat what you kill? Do you have respect for other living beings? You know, do you understand and that life is sacred? Do you have some sort of animal welfare ethic? Do you, do you care about suffering and try to minimize suffering? And, and all of those sorts of questions, which are important questions to lots of hunters, but lots of non-hunters don't know that or don't know whether it is, uh, whether those questions are important. So I think they, they really want to know about your values. And so my experience has been, I need to sort of put my values out front through telling a story or explicitly talking about those values. I just, that's where there's the opportunity to find, to find common ground and to help to break down the stereotypes and help people see, oh, you're a human being who has these values. Now, how does that relate to your hunting? And how does that make you behave as a hunter? You know, they, it, it opens up some doors some for, for common ground and for, for some curiosity and, uh, and understanding. Um, the other thing I'll say is I, I think it's very important not to make assumptions about non-hunters or people who might have questions or feel opposed to hunting. Uh, it's <clears throat> just as we don't like being stereotyped and sort of pigeonholed as, as, as hunters, super important to not pigeonhole others and think, oh, they're just, you know, they're just antis. They don't get it, you know, <clears throat> and, and that sort of shuts, shuts things down if, if we make assumptions um, about others. And, and the last thing I'll say is that every group, every sort of subculture has its own language. And we, we think and talk about things in ways that sometimes obscure and make it harder to recognize our common values. So words like trophy, words like sport, they mean different things in different contexts to different people. And it can, <clears throat> and that's a, this, you know, a really simple example, simplistic almost example. Uh, and it's important to be aware of that. And if you're gonna use language that you don't know for sure the other person understands what you mean you need to like just be careful about it and make sure that you're you're clear about what you mean and that you understand what it's likely to mean to others you know i know some people are like well hunting is a sport that's just what it is and that's the only way we have to talk about it that way we have to claim that and just i i think that kind of sort of being so rigid in our language, like this is this is the right language for it, is is risky because that may not mean what you want it to mean to your audience. You know <laughs> what what they think it means and what you think you're saying may be very different things. Um, so uh, I think just being aware of and and sensitive to those language and terminology nuances is is really helpful as we navigate those waters. Yeah. I wish it was never called sporting or sport. It's, it's a bit weird to say sportsman. I've heard other people say it in a different way that they think you're talking about like baseball or football or something. I don't know where that name came from or where we started with it, but it's, you know, it's not really a sport. I mean, maybe it is to some people, but you know, 
we've got sportsmen and, and everything was called sportsmen for a long time, kind of excluding women. And now we say, you know, sportsmen and women or hunters and anglers, or, you know, it, it's just made of a lot of confusing vocabulary tricks that we all have to work work with to make it sound right. But maybe one day we can come up with a better, you know, singular term that describes it in a better way. Yeah. Um, the other last thing I wanted to ask you about is, is just in your mind and from across your travels and the people you've been working with, what do you think the biggest, you know, hunting conservation issue is out there right now? The thing people should be paying attention to in your opinion. Oh boy, that's a big one. Um, <clears throat> I guess I would say it, it would depend on whether we're thinking about it on the social and cultural side or just on, on the ecological side and they interact, right? But on the ecological side, I would say, you know, I would say too, habitat loss and climate change are the, you know, the, there's lots of other threats out there uh, on the ecological and disease front and all, you know, all kinds of things. Uh, but I'd say as important um, in terms of how we do conservation and how we ensure the future of, of wildlife, habitats, hunting, fishing, all of these interrelated things. Um, it's, it's improving our ability to relate to each other. It's whether it's a state agency doing the kind of relevancy work we were talking about or across, you know, racial and ethnic lines, more women being not only respected, included, honored, you know, as hunters, but in conservation, you know, <clears throat> all of the sort of conversations that are emerging around um, social, um, you know, social justice and equity, you know, being able to speak uh, and listen across those sort of identity groups, whether that's hunter, non-hunter, you know, <clears throat> white folks, black folks, Etc. You know, all of those men and women just improving relationships. Even though wildlife conservation has long been seen as a um, biological and scientific, you know, natural sciences endeavor, I think we see time and again that it's really a human endeavor, right? And the human relationships are the big, big challenge that we need to get a lot better at so we can work together to ensure a, you know, a sustainable and healthy world for all of us. I, I think I would say that, that the, you know, the social parts of managing wildlife and conservation and stuff are actually the bulk of the work. You know, you can do some pretty mechanical things, if you will, to the habitat to make it better, you know, just go out there, replant, you know, get rid of invasives, do some things like that. And it's amazing to have good habitat and the wildlife op often just, you know, follows that good work. And we can do a lot of the social issue where somebody is getting the short end of the stick and, or something like that and as these things progress. And that's always a bit more, you know, trouble to deal with and harder to deal with. So thanks for pointing that out. Um, but I'll leave you at the chance here to just give us a parting shot if you like, and then I'll let you go along your way. Thanks, Aaron. Um, yeah, I've, I've yacked a lot here, <clears throat> um, but I guess I'd just say that the spirit that underpinned the, you know, the founding of, of NWF and, and the work that you're all <clears throat> trying to do, I think is is critical in in the kind of coalition building that we that we need to do. So glad to have a chance to be part of the conversation. Well, we're glad to have you, and thanks for the the good work you're doing. And and of course, we'll be happy to see the progress and the different things that are coming out of the work we're doing with you're doing with WMI and 
there's a lot of cool stuff out there. And I think everybody should just, you know, my advice would be to, to step into those conversations, be prepared to give something, give a little, and that'll help us all get further down the road. And, you know, we're a community. This whole country is a community and we need more connecting things, you know, more than dividing things. There's plenty of things that are divisive right now. So, you know, use wildlife and the outdoors and the people who care about it as a chance to connect. You know, listen to them, do good work like you guys are doing, and, and we'll let folks go with that. So thanks for spending some time. I'd encourage folks to go check out your book. Uh, we'll say it again, The Mindful Carnivore, A Vegetarian's Hunt for Substance. It's a real interesting read. And we'll also uh, add some links to some of your other work on our show notes. So thank you. Thanks, Aaron. All right. Take care. We are NWF Outdoors. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.